Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Alone again, naturally. You're probably starting to think I pissed everybody off. Chased them all away. Not so. Not really so. I promise. And in fact, I am, re- well, hi, this is Pat Bulger with the Pack Filler. <laughs> Believe it or not, I, you know, I, I went to school for broadcasting and uh, I did pretty well, but apparently I've just blown everything off and started a podcast because that's where the money is. What was I saying? Oh yeah, I, I, I'm recording this very segment. Hi everybody, welcome to the show. I'm recording this very segment about an hour and a half before an actual live studio show with all the regular characters. But things have been kind of busy, I guess we could say, in terms of the show and and how things are going and interviews that have been scheduling. And so you're going to get two shows for the price of one this week. You're welcome. You're welcome. All I ask in return is that you subscribe, you rate us on iTunes favorably. (laughs) <laughs> why would you rate somebody poorly on iTunes? Well, I guess I could see why you would. You know, you would. That's all I ask. So today's episode is, um, if you haven't noticed, um, there's this little genre of cycling that is kind of coming up through the cracks and making its way to the surface and growing into a large Jaws-like dominance of the American cycling scene. Yes, that's gravel. And yours truly has been fortunate enough to have quite a few characters in that gravel scene as a part of this podcast. I always like to say that I'm about five minutes ahead of everybody else or, or, of, or of certain cycling-based shows because I'll get these names, I'll get them on the show, we'll talk about what they do, and then about a week later somebody else will have it and they'll get all the PR and all that kind of stuff. And it's probably because 
the other shows, you don't have to listen through my rambling introductions. And I understand that that is something that, you know, some people drive crazy, but, you know, screw you, fast forward. But so many personalities in this gravel world that have been that have come through and, and have been flourishing. And if you noticed, a lot of world tour pros have been hanging up that bike in order to focus on on the gravel scene because it's it's a more relaxed mentality it's competitive yet it's not so diehard competitive you can live a life outside of the cycling world and you can have a beer at the finish along with maybe a cookie and uh, that's something that seems to be appealing to a lot of riders these days especially with uh, the seriousness and of all the all the political stuff that's going on heaven forbid if you were a member of of anybody at the uae tour and you're stuck in a hotel room for two weeks you probably think to yourself, wow, gravel probably doesn't sound bad. I'm only racing 8, 10, maybe 12 weekends a year as opposed to 8, 10, 12 days in a row and then turn around and do it again three days later. So anyway, with that being said, I've had been fortunate enough to have guys like Pete Stetna, Ian Boswell, um, uh, Ashton Lambie, uh, a lot of, lot of great, interesting people, and I know I'm leaving some out, and I apologize, Carl Decker, of course, Um leaving out some writers, but some, some great personalities. And all of them seem to have something in common. They kind of get the joke, if you know what I mean. Uh, they don't take themselves or the sport too seriously, yet they do compete seriously. And today's guest is definitely going to be one of those people. Uh, I, I said in the intro when I introduced him that um, he's one of the guys who was doing gravel before gravel was cool. And I'm sure there's some gravel purists out there who are yelling at me right now saying, that's no, they, we were doing it before that, man. We were we were smoking out and riding the gravel back in the 80s, bro, and stuff, stuff like that. And if that's your wherewithal, that's your wherewithal. But screw you. I still think today's guest is, is one that kind of started to be a part of that movement that brought gravel into this gigantic uh, hype and craze and hopefully controllable growth that we're seeing now. So, of course, you've probably heard of him. You've probably read his blog. You've probably listened to his podcast. Um, and so without further ado, here he is, Ted King from I Am Ted King on the Pack Filler. Okay, everybody, today's guest is no stranger to all elements of the cycling world. He is the two-time winner of the Dirty Kanza. He's the participant in two Tours de France. France, instead of France. He is the host of the King of the Ride podcast, as well as the guy on the keyboard behind imtedking.com. Oh, and by the way, he was doing gravel before everybody came in and ruined it. So let's welcome to the show the one and only Ted King. Ted, how are you, man? Uh, that is, that's one of the better intros I've ever heard. Uh, you can use I'm it. I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. How are you, Patrick? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Um, and, and for the, the listeners to know before we even get started on this thing, I want to officially go on the air and thank you because I think we tried to make this whole thing happen about what, six, seven times, probably at least. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were definitely getting close to a dozen, um, <laughs> but no, I think good patience on on both of our yeah. on both of our ends and and busy schedules have have made this culminate in what we're doing right now. Yeah. So thank you very much. Right on. Well, if you don't mind, I want to start at the beginning, a little bit farther back in the wayback machine, if you will. Well, at least the cycling beginning. You come from a pretty heavy cycling family, am I correct? Um. Yes. With with the qualifier that that 
cycling heavy family extends only to my brother. So <laughs> there are, and and uh, let me let me explain all that. So there yeah. are there are a handful of kings. There's Ben King. There is his brother. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, his brother's name is failing me. Um, my brother is Robbie King. Robbie, Robbie yeah. King got me into the sport of cycling. He is three years my senior. He uh, he he created a, a pretty strong uh, Lisa Palmari straight off the bat. He was he was good in the the high school ranks up here in New England. Okay. Um, it wasn't NICA. There's its own uh, New England high school cycling league um, here in New England, and he was pretty good there. And then he went out to Colorado College. And my first experience in road racing was watching him at a collegiate national championship because it happened to take place about a half hour up the road from where I was going to school in Vermont. And he won that race, and he went on to be a three-time collegiate national champion. Um, We were teammates. We raced uh, domestic pro together, and he is is a rock star on two wheels. (laughs) Now, hockey was your original thing, though, right? Bingo. So yeah. hockey, I mean, I still say that cycling is a little bit of a hobby. And, and <laughs> if I really had my way, I would be a professional hockey player. Um, yeah, I was on skates from the time I could stand. I, I played hockey through high school. Um, I went to a D3 hockey school and I considered trying to walk onto the team, but I was, I was uh, getting a little bit tired of, of playing hockey but man it's such a great sport i love ice hockey really you know this is my ignorance in hockey it's not all just kicking the shit out of other people and stuff like that it is a beautiful sport it's <laughs> i mean I recognize i completely recognize watching the game of hockey especially to an untrained eye is difficult the puck is tiny the camera moves fast there's there's you know 12 players including the goalies on the ice at, at any time but once you get the nuance down, it is so freaking beautiful. And then on top of that, it's taking place on ice. Yeah. So, you know, I I get why anybody wouldn't like watching bike racing. Using um, <laughs> there's a white jersey, there's a polka dot jersey, there's yellow jersey. What's this green jersey all about? But by the same token, hockey is confusing. Both are phenomenal sports. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not going to disagree with you. I mean, in, in some cases, and again, if I'm bastardizing anything, let me know. But I always used to say hockey's kind of like a, a uh, playing soccer on a smaller field and it's a lot quicker. But I, I And I'm saying that as a true soccer fan. Sure. Yeah. No, I, mean, I think that's, that's spot on. Um, the hand-eye coordination is freaking phenomenal. You're playing with this thing the size of, what, uh, a small fist? Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's it is it's a beautiful sport. I love it. So, but to jump back into cycling, you seem to go at this pretty darn quickly. Um, and if if my research is wrong, tell me I'm tell me I'm full of it. But it seems like start your cycling really kind of kicked in around 2002, and then going pro in 2006. Um, that for people like me who've been doing it for way too long and not seeing much of a of a gain in in terms of performance. That's pretty damn fast to go from, hey, this sport sounds fun to I'm a pro in four years. There's there is some truth to that. Um, I mean, I I so I grew up playing sports. I was three sport varsity athlete in high school, but nothing was an endurance sport. It was hockey, which is, you know, sprint heavy. Um, and I was certainly not a sprinter in my cycling career. Um, went to college didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to do something athletic, but my pursuit was academics. Um, ended up graduating college, which is outstanding. But in, in my freshman year, that's when 
my brother inadvertently introduced me to, to the sport of cycling. Um, especially having a collegiate national champion brother who, who can give you training programs and who is a really fast person to chase, who, you know, I mean, just to have that level of competition uh, under the same roof in the summers when you're, when you're back home from college riding against each other is is awesome and super helpful and that that quickly allowed me to move through the ranks so um yeah in those early 2000s it was collegiate cycling and i i think collegiate cycling is the coolest entry into the sport for my generation and now of course we have nike we have the high school leagues um yeah. and those are if you can do that at a at a age four years younger i think that's even better for the sport of cycling here in america um yeah, fast forward to senior year of college, and much like my friends are applying to jobs on Wall Street and, and other <laughs> more affluent areas than professional cycling, um, I had my list of Palmares, I had my list of results, and I was sending them to to team directors saying, hey, you know, any chance you want to pick up this up-and-coming cyclist? Um, so yeah, that year was 2006. I had spent the previous year on the national team balancing uh, also trying to graduate, which thankfully successfully I did both. And, you know, in a way it was sort of the end of the heyday of domestic road racing. Um, I mean, I overlapped with Saturn Mercury had recently folded. Um, Toyota United was coming out that year and that was a you know yeah. powerhouse squad. Um, health net was at its heyday. So it was a really good time in domestic road racing. So jumping into the, the professional Peloton, um, and, and especially after, you know, I, 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 yes, you, you know, you were domestic pro in 2006 and, and what point did you make the jump overseas? What year was that? I did three years domestically. So I did, uh, six, seven, eight, and then 2009 was the first year with Cervelo test team. It, what was that jump like? I, I'm just in terms of stress, intimidation, challenges or something like that, or was it just kind of a nice natural progression? No, um, it was... I would describe it as an entirely different sport. Um, I mean, I remember still making that explanation all the time. It is a domestic cycling and European cycling. I, you know, I say you, you race longer, harder, faster, and that makes it a different sport. So it's all well and good to race Philly. You know, Philly was a massive race at 250 K 150 miles, but that was a, that was a shining one day event in the States. And that was, you know, the peak of your season. You're going to try to have a really great day there. Fast forward to 2009, the next year, I remember being in the Giro and we had three consecutive days all north of 240 kilometers. (laughs) So, I mean, just, just unreal that, that difference. And I think, um, I mean, I got into the sport of cycling a little bit later. I got into it in college as we just talked about. I think that made me perfectly naive to a lot of things. Like I didn't have a steep deep history in understanding the sport and so you know often uh i mean a goofy example like our, our team director was uh john paul van poppel who yeah. was one of the best sprinters in the world absolutely for a handful of years he he basically introduced the lead out train to professional cycling and i had no idea who the guy was so oh see i i have a picture somewhere of him in his super convex jersey that's how, yeah, how old i, mean, I am just, legend uh his son is a prolific cyclist yeah. Uh, but yeah totally naive to me so no different than like jumping in the giro or right before the giro is uh uh tour of romandy 
And I'm like, oh, I've heard of that. I don't know anything about it, but Tour of Romandy sounds like fun. And then, man, there you are getting your teeth kicked in for a week, thinking, how on earth am I going to do this in a grand tour one week from now? But somehow soldiered through it. You've got to shift your attitude or at least have a specific style. And I just how the way you're describing this is making me think that you just I mean, I'm sitting here thinking of the stresses, the pressures, the intimidation from other riders. And it's almost sounds like you're going into this just like going, hey, man, what the hell? Let's just let's see what happens or something like that. Am I wrong in saying that's how you had to approach it? I think I mean, there's truth to that. Um I mean, I, I don't want to sound completely naive. No, no. But I think that's a wonderful way to put it. Like, getting into the sport of cycling late allowed me this sort of blissful ignorance to what I was getting into. Um, <laughs> and so even getting my first domestic contract in 2006, a door opened, and I, I said, okay, I'm going to race, and this is super cool, and, and let's see what I can do here. And then I raced three years domestically. And that final year, 2008, I was the top-ranked American, second-ranked rider overall in the NRC. And that caught the attention of Cervelo Testing. So another door opens and, and um, you know, the opportunity to come overseas and race with the likes of Saster and Hushoft and, and yeah. you know, this phenomenal team, Cervelo Testing in 2009, the opportunity was there. And I'm like, uh, okay, that sounds kind of like fun. And let's see what this is all about. Um, <laughs> it was, yeah, I think blissful ignorance is a, is a pretty good way to put it. Um, it was terrifying. It was fun. It was super humbling um just to race at that different sport level uh, but i think probably no better team than cervella test team it was such this international hodgepodge it was 25 riders it was 15 nationalities um and the cohesiveness of that team still exists today so if i saw if i saw riders from that team uh if i saw mechanics swan years directors there's just there's something that existed there that every rider on that team will talk about every member of that team will talk about that Wow. It wasn't necessarily there elsewhere. Super cool. Was there a plan going in where you're like, okay, this is my objective three years from now. I want to, I want to finish such and such a race or, or, or win or place, or was it just kind of like shit? Let's see what happens the first year and then go from there. I would, I would categorize it as shit. Let's see what happens. Um, <laughs> that, that rise up the ranks domestically you know, I, I figured out over those three years how to race a crit, how to race a five-day stage race, how to do Tour de Tuna, and, and uh, I could time trial well, I could sprint decently well, I could, I could stage race well, and that's what gave me the ability to move up the domestic ranks, and that's what caught the attention of the, the folks overseas. I think not being a specialist was helpful in getting my foot in the door. Um, I mean, I... I empathize without being able to to be in that position pure climbers or pure sprinters because you know i came up in the in the generation of tyler farrar yeah world-class cyclist yeah and you know his biggest problem was this fellow named mark cavendish who came up at the exact same time so if it weren't for cavendish you know tyler would have won or been on the podium dozens more times and had much more recognition than, than the American cycling audience gave him. So, you know, jumping back to your original question, no. First team camp, they're like, hey, you know, what kind of rider are you? Look from your results, from what you, what you do, what you represent, what you do here at camp. It looks like you're a good all-around rider. 
And that allowed me to go to spring classics, the hilly classics, the Ardennes classics, the one day stages, uh, one day races, the week long races, the, the, yeah, seeing the Giro on your first race program. I mean, that's, that's just, it was gnarly. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> and, and allowed for a really colorful career. Yeah. I have, I have one of my questions was asking what your highlights of those years were. And you, you almost just answered that right now. Just the, the, the multitude of the different styles of the events that you were able to compete in. Were there, were there any specific days on the bike in those years where you just went, damn, this was good. You know, I, I, I achieved what I was striving for. Um, surviving the first Giro was a, a good testament to that. Um, 2009, that was the Tour of California in, in February years. So on a particularly wet uh, wet stage early on, I ended up breaking my collarbone. It was my first year on the team. It's February. It's like, well, all that fitness that I've tried to gain over the past three months is all for naught right now. So stay in the States, go to California, go to Arizona, get as fit as I can, go back to Europe. And then it's just this crazy trial by fire. I raced uh, Ronde von Drenth, so this hard race in the Netherlands, um, straight to the Ardennes Classics, uh, Amstel Flesh Liege, straight to Tour of Romandy, straight to the Giro. And the team had zero expectations. They were like, try to get through 10 days. And, and <laughs> um, that first Giro was phenomenal. You know, it's the first Grand Tour for Cervelo testing. We ended up winning five stages. Um, and my my very good friend, former teammate, uh, now manager, uh, Joao Correa, he said he, on a whim, you know, probably two months prior, hey, if you get to the end of the year, I'm going to come to Italy. This guy lives in New York City, and he made the jump, and he hopped on a plane, and, and there I was in Rome, and there he was in Rome. And, uh, yeah, I had very, very few expectations, did not plan to see the end of that, that, that race, but what happened over the course of those three months was phenomenal. Wow. So I don't, I mean, you know, I only got so much time and I don't want to, you know, I please don't take an insult if I, if I fast forward or something like that, but you announced, and I, I don't know why in my notes, I put a lot of things in quotation marks, but this is an audio podcast and people aren't going to know when something's in quotation marks. So, but anyway, you announced your quote retirement end quote in 2015. Um, mm -hmm. First and foremost, what prompted that decision? Um, I, I raced for 10 years professionally and that final year, 2015, um, that was the year that, uh, liquid gas and sorry, the, the yeah. former iteration of liquid gas, which then became Cannondale Pro Cycling merged with the slipstream Garmin operation. So it was a cool sort of coming together because when I was on the liquid gas side of things, it was, it was pretty damn isolating. I had Timmy right. Duggan as my fellow North American. Um, and otherwise it was a very Italian centric operation. Uh, obviously with a ton of success racing for the likes of Sagan, the majority of the time, uh, some Nibali, some Basso in there. Incredibly successful operation. And then we, we make the shift and race, uh, with Slipstream, which was a very young team at the time. Um, so sometime early in that year, I think it was a training camp in about February, I'm looking at the team roster and, and I'm thinking, holy crap, at the age of 32, I'm the third oldest person on this team. <laughs> and I think, I mean, without trying to sound too too poetic, it was 
looking back at my career, I had raced 10 years, um, or I was, that was going to be my 10th year. It, I, I raced through that final year. I, I think it's rare to have a college degree at the, at the world tour level. Yeah. Um, a handful of people do it. A college degree does not guarantee you anything. Um, but it it was, it came to my attention that I could probably continue racing for another decade. Um, I felt safe. I felt I'd established myself as a, as a, you know, super solid domestique. I could continue to get contracts if I wanted to. And I was just ready for something else. Um, it really hit me early in that year. And so I, I talked to some very trusted friends and family and, and said, you know, I'm considering hanging it up. So fast forward uh, from that training camp in February to right before Tour California. So call it May. That's when I announced to the cycling world that I would uh, be hanging it up at the end of that year. And so to sort of segue to a, what I'm anticipating your next question, like <laughs> I retired at the end of that year. Um, to race at the world tour, tour level, the level of, uh, seriousness and discipline and, uh, austerity and, and deprivation is just so stark. And having done that for 10 years, I was very much ready for something else. Uh, so like not to say I live like a glutton, but it's nice to have a beer very (laughs) often. Um, and it's nice to not have non-alcoholic beer and it's nice to have cake and it's nice to not worry about the, the crap that you might get crap for in a previous lifetime. <laughs> oh my God. Amen. Well, there's so much you just said in that last little, little block there. Um, first of all, and I hope, you know, if, if little Johnny's listening to this thing about the, the importance of having not necessarily a backup plan, but that, that college degree is a, big deal and i don't want to turn this into an after school special but yeah i mean you got to have something waiting for you because we're not all going to end up million dollar men and five-time tour winners truth yeah yeah it's uh professional cycling is a is a professional blue collar sport so unless you've won more races than you can count on two hands. And even then it's still a struggle. Um, unless you've created something or come from a great deal of independent wealth, then yeah, you gotta be looking at the other side. And, you know, I think it suits, it suits cyclists well and probably most endurance athletes because the the only thing that we know how to do really well is time in results out, right? You you put your head down and you grind and no one's going to have success in endurance sports without that, kind of entrepreneurial spirit and go get it in this. So, you know, I, I, in 2014, I somewhat inadvertently, that's not the term. uh, I co-founded untapped, which was, you know, maple syrup for sports nutrition, which is something that, that I'm thrilled to in a way have had in my back pocket. Um, My partner, there are phenomenal they were grinding super hard in my time in the world tour um it is it's it's nice having that um and you know college education was not going to help put that uh on my plate so to speak so yeah i mean i couldn't i couldn't echo that point any more solidly than you just did this is an after school special the success rate (laughs) pro cycling is is certainly low so 
a college degree or backup plan is highly recommended. I'm gonna have Johnny. to. I'm gonna have to find the jingle from the more you know. You know, da 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 to play during that that last segment. Yeah. Um. So and then going from 2015, you win your first Kanza the following year. Was the switch to gravel a part of the plan, or was it just a fortunate accident? Hey, I'm gonna go out and ride this race. Zilch. Uh, no, absolutely not part of the plan. Um, over the course of that 2015 year, when I had announced I was going to retire, I, in having raced for those those 10 years, I had good relationships in the sport. Um, gravel in 2016 is a far, far cry from what it is now in 2020. Yeah. Um, gravel was not a thing, to be honest. Like, no one said the term gravel. I think it was mixed surface as much as anything, or just literally riding your bike off-road. <laughs> um, so I, I struck up some relationships going into 2016 with some amazing sponsors, beginning first and foremost with Cannondale. Um, I'd ridden Cannondale's for the previous five years. Uh, they were a New England brand. I was a New England guy. It's It just made a cool story. So they said, hey, you know, there is life beyond bike racing. Um, I, as much as I'm not a fan of the word ambassador, I mean, that's, that, that is what it is. Um, so it was be an ambassador and it was go to, uh, product launches and work with some R and D and, and, you know, develop the product and basically just be on the hospitality team, so to speak. So go to a handful of events. Racing was a very, it wasn't even a far cry. Like it wasn't part of, uh, any level of conversation. So, in fact, I was at a SRAM event. SRAM was and is a sponsor. I was at a SRAM event in, I think, March of 2016. And legendary cyclist, uh, Rebecca Rush, she said, yeah. she was at this event as well. She said, hey, Rody, come on over. I want to see you uh, take a stab at gravel. And so she said, come to Dirty Kanza. Um, she just took me under her wing, showed me the ins and outs and, and sort of tips on how to succeed at Kanza, and that led to a successful 2016. I would love to know those tips, but I, you, you, you can hold your cards close to your chest. That's fine. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're, it involves like eating meat pie. I had the craziest <laughs> caloric bomb before. We, we did a Q&A and my friend Dan Hughes. Dan Hughes is the winningest, well, the two of them. Dan Hughes and Rebecca Rush are the winningest two DK racers. Um, we did a Q and a at his shop. He owns sunflower bike shop in Lawrence, Kansas, outstanding little place. Uh, yeah, it involves a lot of overconsumption and somehow that's apparently good prep for DK. Okay. To say gravel has grown in those four years is the biggest understatement of the year. Um, what is it about it in your opinion that is bringing so much attention? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, man, oh man, that is a great question. <laughs> I think... I think it might be attributable to a few things. I think one, it, it certainly coincides with the, uh, let's call it falling apart of domestic road racing. Yeah. So that, that puts the spotlight on gravel. It's like, Oh shoot, where's road racing going? And what is this other thing that is, that is succeeding so well? So I don't think one is necessarily causal of the other. Cause I don't, as much as we see people leaving road racing and dipping their toe and getting into gravel, what I love about gravel, it is it is bringing people to the bike who would otherwise not ride a bike. Um, you know, it's folks who they wouldn't jump into a Cat Five race. They mm. wouldn't they wouldn't say, "Hey, what is this sweet industrial crit? I want to get into that." It's people <laughs> who would otherwise literally just not ride a bike. So it's this ingratiating, welcoming side of the sport and welcoming side of, of, of a sport that is generally kept at arm's distance. Like road racing is a European sport. It, it happens in bits and spurts here in the States, but it's really cool to see this, this groundswell happen in the, in America. And then I think lastly, it's hats off to the industry. I mean, I think as much as we sort of joke that, I mean, we say it seriously, but I think it is something of a joke to say we, we, we used to ride bikes off road, and just called it riding bikes. Yeah. There is truth to that. But when you're riding a 21C tire and a 23 tooth cassette and you're getting off your bike every every 20 feet because you're bouncing around and getting flat tires, like, that sucks. Whereas now the clearances of bikes, the gear ratios, the compliance, the suppleness, the, the carbon layups, I mean, the industry has done a phenomenal job letting gravel be very welcoming to the masses. And it scares me. I love it. I'm and of the people I the usual cast of characters I usually have in here in studio during shows. I'm probably one of the main guys who's behind it, and I, I'm enjoying it. And I don't want to be the person. Is it just a fad? Is is it going to be like you know, you know, all the yeah. punk bands were cool and then they sold out. Uh, you know, swing music was cool a decade back, and all of a sudden everybody realized it was kind of dumb. Uh, please, what do you think about where is where is gravel going, and is it going to continue to build, or are we going to plateau off and go the way of triathlon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a loaded question, it and is. it's a great question. Um, to be honest. It, it, there's a huge element that scares me too. I mean, you don't want to be, you don't want to be the leading edge of a fad. You <laughs> you want this to succeed. Um, and I guess until I have an answer, which I don't have, I think the simplest thing we can do is not over-engineer it. And yeah. so we got to think of the things that succeeded. What has made gravel what has made gravel cool up to this point what has what are examples of things that have failed in in domestic road racing in mountain biking 20 years ago in cyclocross as cyclocross seems to be on a bit of a nosedive right now like point to the things tangibly and say what works what doesn't work how do we make 
what is good better and how do we totally avoid what what has sucked um i realize that's a lot easier said than done um that's i mean i think when i think of tangible examples it's like if i go to a to a gravel event as much as it's hackneyed to say i i mean this from the bottom of my heart i like nothing more than being with the community I like nothing more than drinking a beer after the race with the community. And I, I, it, it, it pains me how much this is sort of the hackneyed saying from the front of the Peloton, but that's what ingratiated me to, to Emporia, to, to my first DK, to my first gravel event, uh, years and years and years and years prior to that, uh, the grasshoppers. I mean, it's, it is the community. It is, high-fiving and hanging out and 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 you know talking about what happened at mile 24 when we had a river crossing or whatever the heck yeah and those nuggets are irreplaceable and that's what makes the freaking sport of, of riding off-road on mixed terrain on whatever you want to call it that that cool and you know it reminds me of and i i've said this with probably a a couple other gravel-based interviews, you know, it reminds me of the early days of mountain biking. I remember once at Schweitzer Mountain in North Idaho, we had a, a Norman National up there, and I'm sitting there in a pizza place, and across the table's Roland Green, the current, you know, the reigning world champion, and and the guys, I remember really? somebody at the table asked him, hey, man, why, why aren't you over racing in Europe? He says, because I can sit here in a pizza place and have a beer. And I can talk to you guys about the race today. And I, I didn't have a bad day. You know, I, I think he was top five or something like that. But that's a pretty special thing. And the fact that people like me can sit across the table from somebody like that, I'm not going to be able to probably sit across from Vincenzo Nibali at any given point in time in the near future. And I guess the, the accessibility of you guys and you and, and all you guys at the high end of the gravel of, of gravel racing and that you're willing to high five somebody and talk to this, you know, even though, yeah, you're, you probably like, no, it's not a big deal. But for a lot of other people, it is a big deal to get a high five from people like that. I think that the contemporary society is, has made it that much easier to, um, social media, the access to social media, the number of messages that I receive, both the public ones and, and direct messages that, completely i mean i mean this positively nerd out on yeah using what tire should i use what tire pressure and what event should i do i mean it's this non-stop stream and i respond to every single message and i i enjoy that um that didn't exist a handful of years ago and not to say that it just contemporary times and i think that's outstanding i mean i remember being on I remember being on Strava and all my teammates would sort of razz on me. I remember being on Zwift and getting razzed for that. Um, my Italian sports directors, they would give me so much crap for, for social media and for Twitter. And, and I mean, just, I guess being an early adopter to these things has, has been fun. It's been that I was dabbling in when I was racing in the world tour. And now it is something that thrives in contemporary gravel is it being uh, is there some fear or trepidation in your world of somebody who was there at you know at, at some of the early onset stages about inclusion of uci and us usac into the mix 
big time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think. I think. I mean, I think that's a great example of you know the over engineering. What works? What doesn't work? Well, the UCI has a so owned Tour de France, and outside of that, there's a lot of cycling at that UCI level that is vastly in need of being revamped. Uh, um, I won't throw USAC under the bus because I think they actually do some really good things. And yeah. I think Laura, my wife, my wife and I run Rooted Vermont. We have a gravel event. I uh, saw that event the last two years. Um, thrilled to bring people up here, our quaint community in Vermont. We were lucky enough to be invited to the USAC uh, called Gravel, Gravel Summit. Uh, uh, last month, um, mid January in Benville, Arkansas. So, uh, and, you know, two people in representation there from, from USAC Tim John. Rob has adopted one of the worst jobs that I can think of. Like, they're in a terrible position because USAC is thought of as a federation, and federations impart rules and law and everything bad about basically anything. I mean, they're the government. Nobody loves the government, and they're in the exact same spot. So now they're they're trying to make this monumental shift of if I ride a bike, if you ride a bike, if my next door neighbor rides a bike, how does that be part of USA's cycling? So it's an uplifting experience so that you think of, of cycling as a positive thing instead of a rule enforcing governing thing. Um, I mean, I think they have a, a really good perspective. They realize that they're persona non grata. They, they want to make the sport better. And so I don't, I'm, I'm less concerned about them instituting rules um, time will tell. I mean, you know, it's all talk at this point, but I think they have a really good set of heads on their shoulders. So I think that actually offers a little bit of positivity, but sorry, that was a long way to answer. Uh, no, it, yeah, it's, good. there's no reason. I don't think we can UCI. I think the UCI can, can stay doing their thing and gravel can keep doing its thing. Well, and there's already been a gravel worlds UCI discussion. If it, it even happen. I can't remember if it did. Um, and, and these types of things already coming into the mix. And uh, part of me thinks, okay, this, this element, this part of the, of the cycling pie, so to speak, is growing rapidly. Um, maybe there needs to be some form of not, not control, but just, you know, a, a, like you said, a way to organize and grow it properly. I just don't want it to turn into somebody saying, hey, there's a shit ton of money in this. Let's get into it and let's control it and let's make it ours. Yeah. I mean, I think that would be the immediate end to it, um, at least in its current iteration. I mean, one thing that's really interesting is the booming popular success of gravel truly exists in North America only and almost in the U S only. Um, if I talk to Lawrence Tendam is a very good friend. Yeah. He retired this year. He's dipping his toe in gravel. He is as, as relaxed and chill as it gets. And I think that vibe is, is what's awesome about gravel. Um, he 
so I, I asked him, I'm like, what is the Dutch perspective? Um, I talked to a handful of other Europeans. What is their perspective on gravel? And it doesn't have the competitive element. So I find it really interesting that the UCI, which is such a yeah. Eurocentric uh, entity, is seeing this thing happening in North America and saying, we want some of that. Um, you know, if you show up at you show up at a traditional gravel race or event and you ask 100% of the people there, I think, I don't know, I would almost say fewer than 50% of the people would have any idea what the UCI is in the first place. <laughs> Which is a bit neither here nor there, but yeah, conveniently, gravel races in America and and presumably gravel races worldwide don't need the UCI. Um, certainly I can see the compelling point that the UCI could throw money at an event and the race promoter could say, Oh sweet. Yeah. I want an extra whatever in my budget. Thank you, UCI. But the fact that they can live independently, um, that gives me a great deal of hope that they, they will continue to live independently of each other. Fingers are crossed. Fingers are crossed on that one. So, about, so can I ask you about the racing itself? Um, you know, here sure. you're going from the from the road peloton, and you jumped just kind of like right into your you did in your road career, pretty darn quickly into that learning curve. But what is different about gravel in terms of the racing and the preparation? Um, I mean, it's funny to see that what's happening in now my fifth year of this gravel stuff. <laughs> um. Okay, obviously, if you race at the Pro Tour World Tour level, you have an uh, inherent or very well-trained physiological level that is um, higher than the average. And on top of that, you have, you have the resources uh, from, from the sponsor support or, or time resources, just the ability to spend more time training. So, again, to backtrack like 20 minutes, when I retired from the world tour, I, I stopped training. I ride a bike because I enjoy riding a bike. I ride with friends. I do group rides, but I like, you don't do intervals and it pains me to see guys doing intervals now in retirement, um, <laughs> from the world tour because they're, they're in their inherent engine is, is so much more tuned than 99.9999999% of the people in the gravel race. So like, embrace the fun of it unless they enjoyed doing intervals unless they enjoyed the austerity unless they enjoyed being monks which <laughs> would be strange to me um <laughs> then then embrace this like fun loving thing that hey you're cruising on cruise control go ride a bike because it's sweet but stop doing crazy vo2 intervals and stop depriving yourself and stop uh, i don't know i mean it, it pains me because i don't ever want to tell a person how to live. And so I bite my tongue in my previous two minute explanation there. But, but, but then again, I mean, you're, you're at the top end of the gravel world. Um, I, a, a, a dipshit like me, who's, who's trying to, you know, finish or, or, you know, a, a age group, this, this thing, I, I should probably still be doing intervals. Yes. Because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think training and doing intervals when you have a structured life, family, job, yeah. podcast over to, to oversee and create, you need to be regimented with your time. 
And so training is going to fit into a small silo of your life as opposed to professional gravel racing, which is a term that <laughs> gripped at me really hard. Um, I think it's antithetical to the spirit of gravel. Uh, I think, yes, there is a time and place to be, to be a little bit more disciplined at the very, very, very tip top. And for the masses, uh, certainly I think you're going to get more, more of an endorphin rush by being able to finish your VO two intervals, but they're two different entities, uh, the masses in the very tip top. And so I think, I think and hope that you can pick up what I'm putting down. Yeah, no, I, I got you. I got you. I still hate them. I, I still hate doing <laughs> good. Exactly. As you're supposed to passion of a thousand sons. I hate the damn things. Um, how, how about some of the races themselves? We obviously know about Kanza. We know about some of the other big ones, you know, Belgian waffle ride and stuff like that. What are some ones that you might be having putting on your schedule or something like that, that, that you're excited about and maybe the rest of us should. Oh man. Um, well, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't say rooted Vermont. Yeah. Laura and I started an event last year. We, we, like I said, we sold out uh, for 2020 as we did last year, which is outstanding. So we'll be looking at 2021 for rootedvermont.com. Wow. Um, I mean, I love, honestly, I love big ones, small ones, everything in between. So um, I'm headed up to Canada and racing uh, a final, final little race before Dirty Kansas. It's called the R3 G3, part of the Gravel Cup in Canada. Um, I did a, a super small one, a hundred person capped event in Florida earlier this year. Um, uh, it's, I'm thrilled to be a father coming up here very shortly. Um, our baby, <laughs> little baby King's due date is right around the same time as mid South, but I did land run last year. Now mid South. I thought that was an outstanding race. Um, and I mean, it's cool to see the, the trajectory of these, of these events. So Land Run used to be the buildup for Dirty Kansas. So the promoters, Bobby Wintel knows the promoters of Dirty Kansas, and and Land Run used to be this like, okay, everybody who's got their early season fitness because you're going to need it later in at DK. I just did uh, the Oklahoma Gravel Growler, and they're in the same spot. Like now they're the tune-up race wow. in early February to go to uh, to go to Land Run. So the fact that these events can build off each other is is super cool. Um, but and going back to Steamboat, I'm thrilled to do that. I'm 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 I won last year after a uh, a year dabbling on podiums, and it was really nice to be on the top step there. So I'm psyched to get back to Steamboat, um, the Rift, do a little international traveling, so go back to to Iceland. Wow. Uh, yeah, man, busy schedule on the horizon. And a kid due in a couple weeks. And a kiddo do. <laughs> I got my ear. I got my ear to the door, just in case Laura hollers. Yeah, I was um, gonna say that. Technically, true. I think we got three weeks from due date, but my my microscopic knowledge of pregnancy means I think she's basically due any day. Oh my god. Okay. Well, I'm I'm not gonna waste too much more of your time. Um, <laughs> your blog and plod and blog and podcast. I've been podcasting for 20 years, and I just called it a podcast. Um, like it. It's like a vlog. Yeah. I, you heard it here first. I want a dollar every time somebody says it. Uh, so yours, tell me what it is, what, it, what's your format and things like that. Um, man, I mean, I'll hit on all of it. Like I started a blog in 2000, I think it was 2006. Um, 
I was racing, I was traveling, I was living that bachelor lifestyle of like couch crashing and traveling all over the, the US <laughs> going to bike races. And uh, studying economics at Middlebury College, they will force feed you how to write. It is a liberal arts school and you're gonna learn how to write no matter what. You can study math and econ, which is exactly what I did. You're gonna write. And I wrote a lot of emails early on. I was like, man, it's gotta be a more, more, more simplified way to do this. And so I started IamTedKing.com yeah. and I just basically documented my career. Um, I mean, I, I flip through the archives every now and again and, and try to, to spark my memory at particular races. And like, I mean, I, I crack myself up with the, the goofy stuff that I experienced and did and, and was able to document. <laughs> so yeah, all things spin off. I am Ted King. Um, I am, I am Ted King on all social media. Uh, I started the King of the ride podcast, in 2018, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a mere super rookie as compared to you. Well, um, that's been a blast. I mean, I, I, I still have such a, obviously a, a strong connection to the industry across from current pros to retired pros to, to industry professionals. But then it's not necessarily people exclusively in the industry. It's folks who ride bikes. So, and I've had some VPs of Instagram and Facebook, um, some Michelin star chefs, um, really, really cool people who, who have that thread of the bicycle woven through their lives. That, okay. And, I got I to gotta cap it off with King of the Ride video series. Oh, shit. Triple threat. Is, yeah, head over to YouTube. YouTubers. I didn't realize how big YouTube was, but um, <laughs> my very good friend Ansel Dickey here in Vermont, he had been bugging me for, not bugging me, he had tapped me on the shoulder a few times and said, hey, we should create a video series. And Ansel, at that point, was probably a 22-year-old kid. He was finishing up his race career. He's like, let's start videos. And it, it didn't occur to me how powerful those can be to document this new age of gravel. So yeah, name a big gravel bike race and you'll probably find, uh, Ansel and me tackling it last year. And okay. it, it's been a blast to do that. Okay. That sounds pretty cool. All right. Um, I'm going to finish this off with a 10 question speed round. You ready? And your questions only have to be if you want two to three set, uh, two to three sentences or even two to three words. Okay. okay. I've been, I've been for both, so I'll try to be quick. No, this this is this is stupidity. There's nothing really intelligent about these ten questions. So. Okay, lay it on me. Number one, best beer. I'm drinking a Bissell Brothers right now Are out you? of Portland, Maine. It's only four o'clock in the afternoon, but I'm having a Founders Session IPA myself. But okay, Bissell. Okay. Um, no. What's that? I don't. I do drink beer at four in the afternoon. It is seven fifteen here. Yeah. So. Yeah. So no, you're okay. I'm I'm the one who's screwed up. Okay. Yeah. And my previous one was uh, Banded <laughs> Horn out of also out of Maine. Anyway. Okay. All the things that rock. All so. right. Next uh, question. Uh, arrow bars on gravel? Yes or no? Or hell no? Hell no. Hell no. All right. Man, I could. Fit there. I'm going to have some listeners going. Explain why or something like it. But no, it's 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 speed round. Um, number three, importance of tire pressure. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's important. I say, put in a lot, take out a little. Um, you can run surprisingly low pressures. That's what's excellent about gravels. You can ride such wide tires. Yeah. Uh, tubeless is is phenomenal technology. So, okay, yes, tire yes. pressures are a thing. Other than home state, your favorite place to ride? 
Ooh. Uh, I'll go with Chianti. It's a Ooh. it's a pretty special part of Italy. That's not. I've never had a Chianti. That's nice. Okay. Um, personal hero. Ooh. Uh, I'll go with my dad. Oh. He. Uh, dad was a prominent orthopedic surgeon in our town. He he raised two good kids. I think. Um, awesome, awesome human being. He's also Ted King senior. Uh, he suffered a stroke in, uh, March of 2003 and that meant immediate retirement. He has, uh, severe physical handicaps. Um, he, he was and is the most intelligent human being. I know he's, he's amazing. We started the, the King challenge, which is going into our 10th year this year. It's a fundraising ride for uh, the Krempel Center, which is a place for adults with brain injury. Anyway, oh. dad's amazing. Mom is right up there as dad's caregiver as another hero of mine. So my parents are phenomenal people. That's a perfect answer. Best technical advancement in cycling? Uh, I did say tubeless tires, which are yeah. phenomenal. Okay. Uh, disc brakes. Okay. Oh, Paul heard that one. Keep uh, warm. Yep. Um, opinions on facial hair in the sport of cycling. I had a beard once. Uh, it didn't look great. I, I was told I looked homeless a lot. Um, <laughs> basically I'd say own it. Okay. You know? Like, yeah. Well, like you had Ashton on your own show just recently and Ashton has made that stash his, he, he owns it. Absolutely. He's outstanding in it. Uh, Payson's got a really nice one. He is Payson's yeah. Payson's mustache has, has certainly come into its own over the past year or so of knowing Payson. Um, yeah, they, they both carry them well. So, okay. I'll admit, I'll admit. La- last question. If it wasn't for the bike, I would be blank. Wealthier. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably have slightly less of a soul if i given my my academic track record and seeing where my classmates went there would be a very good chance i would have ended up on wall street i probably would have made a lot more money and i probably wouldn't have nearly as much fun as i'm having now right on well ted it took a while to make this happen but um dude thank you so much and uh, first of all congratulations in advance to you and and to your wife laura um it's going to change your life, man. I absolutely am looking forward to it. I've been racing bike for a while. I'm excited for some, some new and exciting changes in our lives. Yeah. So thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, nope. thank you for the past hour. I am Ted is where they can find everything in regards to you. And, uh, you guys follow this guy gets the joke and that's what I love about following your stuff. So thanks, man. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Patrick. So I don't know if this is fact or not yet, or if it's if it actually came to be, but there's a good chance that when you are listening to this very episode, Ted King could be a brand new father. So let's wish him and his wife a wonderful experience. Hope that all goes absolutely terrific. Um, and hey, congratulations. <laughs> good conversation, good guy. And as I said at the intro, that guy gets the joke. He uh, takes his sport seriously, but he doesn't take himself too seriously. And that was what was fun about having him on the show. 
So, folks, if you haven't become a part of the gravel scene or the gravel revolution, or if you think it's just hype and it's and it's all bullshit, um, I suggest you try it out. I suggest you go see what the big deal is. It's a fun. It's a relaxed atmosphere. It's it's that perfect cross between road and mountains. So if you're like me and you you straddle all types of top tubes, you 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 might understand. You might get it. If you're a dyed in the wool roadie. Um, or you're just strictly downhill mountain bike guy, it might be a little stretch for you, but I, I recommend dipping your foot into the other pond every once in a while. Big thanks to everybody for being a part of the show. I am about, as I said at the intro, I'm about an hour and a half away from an actual live show with a whole bunch of people here in the studio. I do want to thank my friends over at Gooder, Gooder Sunglasses. Go over and check out everything they are doing at Gooder.com, G-O-O-D-R.com. Also, my friends at Scratch Labs, you guys... The apple cider flavor is disappearing quickly. It was a seasonal flavor, and I can't recommend it enough for after a really long, cold ride, a little hot cup of that. Change your life. Change your life. I shit you not. Talk to you next week. I actually talk to you in about an hour and a half. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.